0: here so uh, a lot of you know eric eric stepped in uh in a season an interim season uh to lead worship for us while we did some interviews and uh, looked into hiring someone to uh, be able to take the position full-time and so a few weeks ago uh, I just told Eric it was time for him to quit running from God and to just take the job <laughs> and so starting Friday which is April Fool's Day I don't know if that's a good sign or not but uh, <laughs> Eric has officially accepted the job and so April 1st will be his first day um, yeah 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 um, here's something I think is important for you guys to, to understand what you see up here is about 25 minutes but what makes this 25 minutes what it's been in the last two months is what's been going on in the other 39 and a half hours during the week that no one else has seen. And so Eric has led, I would say you, you lead even better off the platform than you do on, which is so significant. And so then Sunday, if you've been with us the last few weeks, is just an overflow or an outpouring of what he is doing and God is doing through him behind the scenes. And so really excited about that. Um, and then the second thing is Garrett. Where is he? come on up here, Garrett. So Garrett, Garrett's our student pastor. Um, also, Eric has a beard, which is part of the, the hiring process. Um, uh, <clears throat> Garrett's our student pastor. You've been with us since November, uh, started in November. Uh, Garrett's a Clayton kid, and um, uh, but he and uh, Ashlyn have been feeling led by God. To, no, I'm just kidding. They're not going anywhere. <laughs> uh, but we're going to be ordaining Garrett. And so a little bit about ordination. Ordination is not something that was given to the church. So there's not like a a descriptive way that you have to do it uh depending on your background like i grew up baptist where like ordination was like a four-hour theological grilling um at the end of the day if if i wasn't comfortable with what garrett believed he wouldn't even be working on the staff so there's no reason to, to delve into all of that uh i i trust you i know what you believe i believe in your calling and so ordination for us is just publicly recognizing someone's call to serve in full-time ministry as a pastor and so Garrett has been doing that, and so the official step for us is to just simply pray over him as a, as a congregation, and so the reason we do it the way we do it is uh, ordained people pray over and send out ordained people, and so Jake, Eric, and I are the guys that or, are ordained here, and so have you stand in the middle, I'm going to lay hands on you, and I'm going to have Jake uh, pray for you.
1: Yeah, so Father, we just um, just want to thank you for your love and grace, Lord that you're a good God, you're a gracious God. Mm. Uh, we want to thank you for Ashlyn and, and for yeah. Garrett. Lord, for their commitment to the gospel and, and to what you've called them to, Lord. So, Lord, we just thank you for that, their commitment to that. Lord, that we, we pray for boldness in the gospel. We pray for, uh, uh, that, Lord, that they would lean into you in mm. their identity, yeah. that they wouldn't find it other places. Lord, they would seek you first in all things. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. Yeah. We thank you for their commitment, not only to the gospel, but to generation. Yeah. Now, uh, already, uh, at Garrett's time here, he, is, he has affected so many students and so many adults, uh, Lord. So we thank you for that. Lord, again, we just pray that you would uh, continue to draw them to yourself. Lord, that they would seek you, and that they find uh, their identity in you uh, over and over and over again. So, Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace and for what you're going to continue to do through Garrett and through his wife, Ashen. Thank you. Put all this before you. Amen.
0: All right. So Romans chapter five, we're finishing up uh, Romans five this morning. Um, if, uh, if you haven't been with us, just a little bit of, uh, of what we're doing is we're walking through the book of Romans We're doing a series called unashamed at the very beginning of the book of Romans, Paul declares and says, I am not ashamed. I'm unashamed of the gospel. And then for the next few chapters, he's been walking us through revealing the need that everyone has for the gospel that whether you're a pagan. And when we talked about the pagans, I was like, yes, my, uh, my neighbor that I hate, yes, he needs the gospel. And then we talked about moral people, man, moral people need the gospel and religious people need the gospel. So Paul has made this case and he's walked us through the gospel. He's contended for it. Last week, he kind of hit pause and said, hey, let me tell you about a bunch of the benefits that you have that you don't realize. And so then he laid out the benefits for us. And then now as he wraps up this section of Romans, this is really the end of Romans five is like, if you were kind of putting dividing lines in your Bible, the end of Romans five, that marks the end of a section of the book of Romans. And so he's gonna transition to talk about some different things moving forward but he closes and he's going to compare and contrast two people. Like think throughout history of people that have made a significant impact, not only on their life, but on the lives of others. Like I think of Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler was a man that, that was responsible for the genocide of 6 million Jews. That doesn't even begin to talk about all, all of the other horrendous things that he did. But you take one man like that and you go, man, that guy's responsible for the death and destruction of many. Or you could go to the other side of that coin and you could talk about someone like Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Like Mother Teresa was one who has left a, an impact that is still continuing today. People are still benefiting from what she did and they don't even know her. There are orphanages that have been started, refugees that have been saved, leper colonies that, that have been started. She began a, a, an organization that today has 5,000 nuns operating in 133 countries. And so in Hitler, you have a man who brought death and destruction to many. And in Mother Teresa, you have someone who brought life and hope to many. And so as Paul closes out the section of Romans, he's going to compare two people. He's going to take Jesus, who they, the Roman church, they all would have known, the Jews and the Gentiles they, and the Greek, all of them would have known who Jesus was. And he's also going to take Adam, who they all knew. If you remember a few weeks ago in, in Romans 4, we talked about Abraham and, and Paul said, let's go back and talk about the father of the Jewish nation. When I says no, let's go even further back and let's talk about the, the father of the human race. And so he's gonna compare and, compa- and contrast Jesus with Adam and talk about how in one death and destruction came, but how in the other life and hope and forgiveness have come. And he starts with, with Adam in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone for Adam's sinned. So he takes us all the way back to the creation of man, all the way back to the garden of Eden In the book of Genesis. We're told that over the first six days, God created everything. The sixth day he created man, he created Adam. And he said about everything that he created. He said, everything is good except the man. He said, the man is very good. The reason he said that is because man was created in the image of God. Today, you and I are, are image bearers of God. And he placed Adam in the garden and he gave Adam almost limitless freedom and almost limitless authority. In fact, he told Adam, you could do pretty much whatever you want to do. The only thing you can't do in Genesis chapter two, verse 16, it says, but the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden Verse 17, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. She says, if you eat, it's fruit. Now, if you underline or write in your Bible, uh, underline that word fruit, uh, the Hebrew word for, for that word fruit, anyone know what that is? It's actually avocado. So that's why I don't eat avocado or guacamole. Like I'm just trying to do what God told us to do. Um, so, so there's this tree and, and God says you can eat anything you want except that tree. And it's not like he just said, don't eat the tree. And then that was it. He said to Adam, don't eat that tree. This is what will happen. And this is what it's going to cost you. He gave him the consequences up front and said, if you do that, this is what is going to happen. Said, there's all these things that you can do. There's a million things in the garden that you can do, Adam, but there's one thing that you can't. And Adam and Eve chose to do the one thing that they were told not to do. And all of humanity and all of creation fell with them. Notice it says at the end of Romans 5, 12, it says for everyone sinned. Our sin happened long before today, our sin, we all fell. We all died with Adam thousands of, of, of years ago. So Adam was a represent, representative of all of humanity. It's what we refer to as a, a federal headship. So a federal head uh, is a person who through a covenant relationship represents one or, or multiple other individuals. A federal head is, is one of solidarity, and by that I mean everybody benefits or everyone suffers based on the actions of one. i uh, think back to elementary school. Anybody remember being in a class and the teacher's like fed up with everyone, and they if, if one more person talks, no, we're, no, nobody in this class is getting the party. Anybody remember that kid? How many of you were that kid, right? I, I definitely me on a couple of occasions. But one person did wrong, and I remember the times it wasn't me. I'm like, I, for once, I didn't talk. Why do I have to suffer because of what he did? That's an example of the, the the solidarity. We're all in this together. Another example would be, if you're a movie person, is The Hunger Games. You had Katniss Everdeen, who was representing her district. And so she stood in as the uh, as the representative. If she had success, her district would have success. They would experience food. They would experience the spoils of her victory, and if she was unsuccessful, obviously she died, but then they would suffer the consequences of not being able to experience what they would have experienced had she, had she been successful. And so for us, Adam is that federal head, he's that representative, he represents all of us. Which I'm gonna to be totally honest with you, I don't think that's very fair. Like I, I wasn't in the garden. Would I have eaten the fruit? Maybe, probably, yes, but, but I wasn't there. I didn't know Adam. Like I, like, I don't remember us making him the representative of our district. I missed the family meeting where we discussed who the person was going to be that would stand in for all of us. And so it doesn't seem fair, but there's a couple of things that <clears throat> that we have to keep in mind. Number one is God in his infinite knowledge and in his wisdom knows the condition of every one of our hearts. And he knows that presented with the choice, we would have chosen sin and self, just like Adam and Eve did. And I'll be the first to admit, if you put me in the garden, I would have done the exact same thing. And if you put me in a garden and told me I could eat anything except one thing, the only thing I'm thinking about is the one thing I can't have. I mean, I'm the guy, if you put me in a room with a button and say, don't push the button, I'm going to push the button. Like if I'm the guy walking in a building and I see a wet paint sign and I'm like, how wet is it? Like, I want to touch the wall just to see how wet it is. If there's, we've got a picture of Kendall and I, uh, when Kendall was about three years old, we're at the zoo and we're taking this picture on these rocks and there's a sign right next to it that says, stay off the rocks. Like, like I know how I'm wired. Like presented with that choice, we would have done the exact same thing. And, and God knew that. God knew that we wouldn't be able to resist the temptation. Man, we can't even resist the temptation to have candy in the house without wanting to eat the entire bag. And yet we think that we could be, we could have been in the garden of Eden with the choice to resist the temptation to eat from a tree that promised to give us some level of God-like knowledge and power. We absolutely would have done the same thing. So we got to keep in mind that God and in his infinite wisdom knew the condition of our hearts and knew that we would choose sin and self. And then the second thing is don't we confirm it every single day? Don't we confirm he's right? When, when we mistreat each other, when we judge each other, when we're dishonest, when the things that we think about fortunately stay in here and don't actually come out of our mouth or, or, in, or, or dis, aren't displayed in our actions, but don't we confirm it every single day that God is absolutely right? Adam is this, this head and when Adam sinned, we all sinned, we, we all fell, we all began to die because of this one action. So it goes on in verse 13 and he says, yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. So the law wasn't given, like the 10 commandments, the law wasn't given until Moses, hundreds of years after Adam. So the debate that always existed was, well, what about the people before the law was given? If the law was given to reveal how sinful we were, then what do you do with the people who lived before Moses and and after Adam? Like, what about Cain and Abel? What about Noah? What about Abraham, Jacob and Isaac? And so the question was, could they really be breaking rules if there weren't any rules to break? What do you do when there isn't a scoreboard? Those of us who who have kids, anybody remember the days when your kids were little, when they played sports and they didn't keep score? The only thing worse than watching little kids play sports is not keeping score. Like how, how awful was that? Like I show up and I'm like, what's the score? Oh, we're not keeping score. Well, why are we playing? And then you, and then you, you get to go, oh, we're trying to teach them how to have fun. Well, you know what's fun? Winning is fun. How about we teach them how to win? Like they'll have a really good time. But I don't listen. If you're a parent, I don't care if there's a scoreboard there or not. Do you know what the score is? I can promise you I know. The only time I don't know what the score is is if my kid's team happened to be losing. There's not a parent in here, you didn't need somebody tallying a book to tell you how many goals your kids had, you knew. Right, without the scoreboard, that didn't mean that we didn't have a knowledge of what the score was. And the point Paul is making is without the law, without the scoreboard, there was still an awareness that what we were doing was wrong. The giving of the law was the addition of the scoreboard, but long before the law was given, people had an instinctive understanding and knowledge of the difference between right and wrong. In fact, we're born with it. Our kids are born, we're, we're all born innocent. Like remember holding your, your child for the first time? Like I'll, I'll see some of you guys, you, you've had babies and you've got these little babies that you're holding and they're cute and innocent. And I'm like, that's a sinner right there. And, you know, you you look at the baby and you think like, I remember like holding my kids for the first time and I'm like, I can't ever imagine them lying to me. I can't ever imagine them, them hurting someone. But you remember the first time they lied to you? Like 18 months old, maybe two years old. First time they lied to us. You realized very quickly that there was an instinctive understanding of the difference between right and wrong because nobody had to teach them how to lie. Like I never, I never sent my kids to a, a seminar on how to deceive and lie to your parents. We never had family lectures about the difference between truth and lying. But yet somehow something in them knew when presented with the choice to choose to be dishonest. And, and the most shocking part to me, was looking at their face, you could see it all over their face, which told me instantly at two years old, not only did they know instinctively to lie, but something told them without anyone telling them that lying was wrong, you could see it all all over their face. They knew that what they did was wrong. Paul says before the scoreboard came around, like before my kids knew the 10 Commandments, there was something in them, there's something in us that instinctively knows the difference between right and wrong, and so we are without excuse. The law was simply given to expose our inability and our, and our unwillingness to choose right. It was given to remove all doubt and all excuse. And he goes on in verse 14, and he says, still everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did because they knew the difference between right and wrong, whether it was written or not. Now, Adam is a symbol, a, represent, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. So he says, you've got Adam. In Adam, we all died and in Adam, we all fell. Then now he's gonna talk to us about, about Jesus. He's gonna talk to us about the difference between the two men in verse 15. But there's a difference, a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam brought death to many but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. here's the good news. We don't like the federal headship thing when it comes to Adam. We don't like that we got lumped into that, but the good news is if one man could bring death and destruction, then one man could bring life and forgiveness. One man could make us alive. Adam's self-centered choice brought death and destruction, and Jesus' self-sacrificial choice brings forgiveness and life. It's this beautiful picture. We talk about how sin is destroying everything and the gospel is changing everything. I always think of the movie, The Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Like when when the kids first get, get in there, like everything is just, it's cold, it's dark, it feels hopeless, but then as the movie develops, you start to hear them say things like, Aslan is on the move. And as Aslan is on the move, all of the things that were dying are coming back to life. The trees are sprouting, the, the snow is melting, the ice is cracking. All of the things that were broken, all of the things that were, uh, that were dead are being made alive, they're, they're being made whole. And Paul is reminding that of this, that yes, in Adam, we lost everything, but in Jesus, we have the opportunity to gain everything. Verse 16, and the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin for adam's sin led to condemnation condemnation is to be declared guilty like like we get it i think most if not all of us in here like i i don't, I don't know any of us are going to argue as to whether or not we're sinners like like we get that we make a connection with that and there's condemnation that comes with that not only being declared guilty but the feeling in the of hopelessness and despair that that comes with that the guilt that we feel It says, Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. So Adam's sin brings condemnation. It brings a declaration of guilt. Jesus' sacrifice brings a declaration of righteousness. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we went to to Bible school. We talked about the word justification. To be justified means to be declared right in God's sin a declaration of, of being right in his sight. Not that happens over time, but that happens in an instant. It's an instant reality. That right now, God sees you and I the exact way he sees Jesus. And this is something that Paul has talked about over and over through the first few chapters of Romans. If you read any of the other books he wrote, he, wrote, he talks about this a lot as well, because we often forget it. Like if I were to ask you, how do you think God views you right now? Most of our opinions, most of our of our beliefs are going to be based off of how we've acted or how we've done the last 24 hours or how we've we've operated the last week. Like man, if you, if you checked all the boxes, I read my Bible, I I prayed, I maybe lived the blessed rhythms and with with one of my neighbors, uh, yeah, I paid for the person behind me at Starbucks, I helped an old lady cross the street. Like whatever it is, if we feel like morally we did good, then you're probably sitting here going, yeah, "I think God God's probably pretty proud of me right now. I think he probably feels like I'm looking pretty good right now. But what if you didn't? What if in the last 24 hours, you yielded to temptation, something that you knew, like you knew you were making the wrong choice, but you did it anyway? Or maybe driving here this morning, you know, you freaked out at your kids, or maybe you cussed out the construction workers on 42 which I've done multiple times this week. Um, Don't even get me started about how they've shut down this second turn lane here, but never mind. Um, uh, It's just gonna get bad. Um, Or maybe here you you had an an encounter with someone and you were unpleasant, and right now you're feeling feeling bad about that. And when I say, how do you think God views you right now? You go, based on what I've done, I think he's probably pretty frustrated and, and angry with me. And Paul brings us back to the truth that trumps how we feel. Right now, you are declared right in the eyes of God, and that means that God views you right now exactly how how he views Jesus. And he says he views us that we are right with God even though we are guilty of many sins. Doesn't mean our sin doesn't matter. It means that in spite of that, because of Jesus, that God views us the way he views Jesus. He goes on in verse 17, he says, for the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. He says all who receive it. So in Adam, that's something we inherited. We didn't get get to choose that that one. That one just sort of happened to us. But in Jesus, we have an opportunity to receive God's grace, to receive a right standing in the eyes of God. We have an opportunity to receive a gift that gives us triumph over sin and death. But we've got to make a decision. We've we've got to make the choice. We're all born on Team Adam. Like, Like whether you wanted to be there or not, whether it's what you would have chosen or not, doesn't matter. We are all born on Team Adam, we're all born in, uh sin we we are sinners by choice because we are born with a nature to choose sin that 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 like we, we didn't have a choice in that but jesus offer of eternal life is a gift that's extended to every one of us if we say yes we're born on team adam but we can make the choice to say yes to being a part of of team jesus he goes on in verse 18 he says adam's Sin brings condemnation for everyone. We talked about that. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. So Adam's one choice brought death and destruction. Jesus' one act of righteousness, giving his life, sacrificing his life for you and I, brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one person obeyed God, obeyed God many will be made righteous. We have a choice to make. Paul's been thundering away at this for five chapters. We have a choice to make. Are we going to continue to choose the good things that we can do, put our faith and trust in our merit, put our faith and trust in all of the religious check in the boxes that we have? Man, I went to uh service this week some of you like easter i'll sacrifice and go at 8 a.m so put put you know put a, a star next to that one extra credit you know or or yeah i put money in the the offering buckets served on a ministry whatever it is all those things like you're going to continue to put your faith and trust in that are you going to put your faith and trust in jesus and what jesus has done paul says through adam's one sin we receive condemnation, but through Jesus' act, we can receive a right relationship with God. The question comes back to what you and I believe about the gospel. Like, do you believe that Jesus lived, died, was buried, and rose again to pay for your sins to reconcile you back to God? You may push back and go, "Like, I, I want to believe that, but I got a bunch of other questions. Like, what do we do about suffering in the world, or all these other things that that?" Uh, that, that we question. I'm not asking you to eliminate the other questions. I'm just simply asking you to put those questions to the side and answer the one question. Do you, do you believe that? And you say, well, man, my, my, my questions are important. Until I can figure those out, I'm not ready to, to take this leap. But yet we do it all the time in life. If you're married, how many of us in here waited till we understood everything there was to know about marriage to get married? Like none of us. We may have thought we knew, but we didn't know. Same thing with having kids. If we knew everything there was to know about having kids before we had kids, we would have never had them. (laughs) Right, like like we, we take these leaps all the time where we go, with the information I have and with the questions that still exist and the things that I still can't answer, with the information I have, I'm willing to take the leap. And this morning, with the information that you have, are you willing to take the leap? to say yes to team Jesus. You say, well, how do I do that? In Romans 10, later in this book, he tells us, he says, you believe it in your heart. Like, do you believe that Jesus lived, died, was buried, and rose again to pay for your sins to reconcile you back to God? Do you believe that to be true? He says, we believe it in our heart, and then we confess it with our mouth. To tell him in your own words, you can do this right now, you can do this When we're praying in a minute, you can do this when we're doing the the last song in the car on the way home, like wherever it is, there's no sacred place for this. But you believe it in your heart. And then with, with our mouth, we confess it. We declare to him, I may not understand everything there is to know about this, but with the information I have, I take the leap and I choose to believe that Jesus came into this world, that he lived the life that I couldn't live. And now I say yes to his offer of eternal life by transferring my faith from anything that I could do and transferring my faith solely to what he's done. And then he ends this section with with two verses, Matthew, or excuse me, Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. This is what I call the the bottom line. Uh, If you're anything like me, I tend to zone in and out of stories. Like if you tell me a long story, I'm not gonna remember most of it. Um, Jimmy, my pastor, used to uh, ask me in staff meetings, like, Jared, have you gone to your happy place again? Like, I just, like, lengthy conversations I just don't do well. Like, for me, if you're gonna tell me a story, um, get to the part that's either gonna entertain me or that impacts me. I don't need to know all the other details, just get right to it. So if you don't hear anything else that Paul said in these five chapters, literally, if the only thing you walk away from is understanding these two verses, then you pretty much understand the content of everything that, that he set up to this point. This is what I call like the bottom line of the first five chapters of, of, uh, of Romans. Uh, verse 20, he says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sin more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's gr- wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says our sin is, is great. Like our sin, I, 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 I think our sin is, is worse than any of us know, worse than we understand. Even what's going on in our heart, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. It's so bad we don't even understand how bad it is. Our sin is great. It's worse than we realize, and it often seems to overwhelm us. You ever walk, over, walk around just, just like with a, just a, a sense of that? man, just you, you, you ask yourself questions like if I were really a follower of Jesus, would I think this way? Would I do this? Would I say this? And if Jesus was really the Lord of my life, would, would, would this be happening over and over and over again? Would I continue to walk in defeat? Like our sin is great and it always seems to overwhelm us. But where our sin overwhelms us God's grace through the gospel overwhelms our sin. It says as people sin more and more, your your translation may say um, as sin abounded, God's grace abounded even more. Uh, maybe even better way for that to have been written is where sin abounded, God's grace superabounded. Like think of uh, the South Fork Dam, the dam that collapsed years ago. Uh, if sin is the South Fork Dam. God's grace is the 20 million gallons of water that just sort of overwhelmed it. That there is no place your or my sin can take us that God's grace isn't already there. That there is no sin so great that you can't be forgiven. In fact, there's no sin so great that hasn't already been forgiven. Sin overwhelms us, but God's grace always overwhelms our sin. As Paul closes, he introduces us to two really important and inseparable truths. One is this, God is holy and just, and our sin requires punishment. Number two is that God is gracious and loving, so in Christ our sins are paid for. These are inseparable truths. They're like like wings on an airplane. You ever get on an airplane and ask the pilot, hey, which wing is more important? Like, obviously you don't ask that because you know, like, if you're up in the air and one falls off, all of a sudden you know which one was more important. It's the one that's like falling down below. Like you need them both. They're, they're, they're equally important, they're equally significant. But what happens to us is we tend to, like a pendulum, we tend to kind of swing from one to the other. Like, like we, we tend to overemphasize our sin, and then sometimes we overemphasize God is love and God is gracious and we forget about the reality of our sin. And these are inseparable. And it's the gospel that holds these, these two together. And when we forget one of them, it leads us to run, to, to run in one of two extremes, one being legalism, the other being liberalism. Legalism emphasizes the holiness of God and the justice of God. And when you're under the reality of the weight and the despair that sin causes, and you're emphasizing the holiness and the justice of God, your response is to try to behave your way into His favor. That's legalism. That's doing the right things for the wrong reason. That's trying to operate to a place of being loved by God instead of operating from a place of already being loved by Him. And then the other extreme is, is liberalism. Liberalism emphasizes the love of God. Liberalism focuses on things like value, uh, valuing reason over scripture and how we feel over what we know. Legalism is religion that maximizes the holiness of God and minimizes his love. Then liberalism is the other end of that. And it maximizes the love of God and minimizes the holiness and Paul introduces us to these two truths and says, it's the gospel that holds them together. It's the gospel that keeps us centered. That yes, God is just and holy. Yes, our sin matters. But yes, God is gracious and loving. And in Jesus, our sin has been paid for. So we've got a a chart up here that uh, I want us to, to look at um, without my glasses on, I cannot even come close to reading that. Can you guys read it? All right, well, just you'll be fine. Uh, just trust me. Um, so, so the gospel, so um, when, I was, when I was growing up, um, we grew up in Newport, Rhode Island, and so near the beach. And so we'd go to the beach, and my mom and dad would rarely get in the water, but they would always sit on the shore. And if you've ever been to the beach, you always just kind of, you drift. You don't realize it, but out in the water, you're just drifting. And so eventually i'd see my dad and he'd be like pointing at me and then he'd be pointing at my mom and i'm like well, i had no idea we drifted that far so every one time he said he said use this lifeguard chair like lifeguard chair 17. he's like that that's the thing that's going to keep you centered if you're always in front of lifeguard chair 17 you're never going to drift and so it's like the gospel the gospel is lifeguard chair 17. you keep your eyes on the gospel you're not going to drift when we lose sight of it we run into one of these extremes so legalism says god is holy is that true Yes, that's true. Come on class, is that true? One more time, is that true? Good job. Uh, uh, Liberalism says God is love, is that true? Of course it's true. The gospel says God is holy and God is love. Um, Legalism says earn your own righteousness. Liberalism says you don't need righteousness. The gospel says receive God's perfect righteousness. And then skip down a couple, people can't change Change isn't easy, that's what legalism tells us. Liberalism says people don't need to change. The gospel says people can change, but there are no quick fixes. Legalism says go into guilt, just work it off, work harder, be better. Liberalism says go away from guilt, convince yourself you're okay. And the gospel says go through guilt because rest is found in Christ. Legalism says repent of sins, the gospel says, repent of your sin and your self-righteousness. Liber- liberalism says, repent of neither. Um, that's gonna be available later on Facebook and Instagram if, if you want a copy of that. Uh, I think I'm a smart guy, but I'm not smart enough to come up with that. A guy named Tim Keller uh, did that, but I think it just so beautifully illustrates this pull that we have. Depending on how you are raised, I grew up in a very legalistic uh, church background where everything was about rules and everything was about behavior and the way God viewed you was largely based on how you lived and we always heard about the holiness and the justice of God and it was never balanced with the love and it's the gospel that brings the balance that's what he's telling us in Romans 5 20 and 21 have you guys uh, I want you guys to stand with me Uh, I want to do something different we we don't do this uh, Often, based on your answer to that first question, I don't know how good this class is gonna do. <laughs> um, uh, let's, God, is God holy? Yeah. All right, all right, good. Um, so preach the gospel to yourself every day. You hear me talk about that a lot. Luther said preach the gospel to yourself every day because you forget it every day. All right? And so the, the, this poll is gonna be liberalism and legalism. So Paul grounds us with these last two verses and so we're gonna read these together. So all of us out loud, we're going to read these together and let's go. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sin more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as, sorry. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death. Now God's wonderful grace rules instead giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I want you to believe that. I want you to believe it every single day. I wanna believe it every day. And that's why I gotta preach it to myself every day. Let's pray. Father, it is because of your grace, it is because of your mercy, it is because of your love, that you sent Jesus. Jesus, it's because of your sacrifice that we can now stand before the Father declared right. Not only are we at peace with God, but we now live in a harmonious relationship as dearly loved sons and daughters with God. It's because of what you've done for us, Jesus, and it leads us back to the place that we always come back to and we need to always come back to. It leads us back to the cross where you suffered and you bled and you died to give us life. Jesus, you willingly took the thorns, the beatings, the nails in our place so that we could live. So we just say thank you. We don't try to earn our way there. We don't try to convince ourselves that we deserve it. We simply rest in the gospel. We we rest in the gift. And we say thank you for it. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for giving us life. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray it.